Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. With conflicts in the Middle East and having to keep tabs on affairs in the Pacific, the Navy has a hefty to-do list. How's it coping? Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Naval Analyst and Hudson Institute Senior Fellow Brian Clark. So the Navy is stressed, uh, you know, as you might expect, Eric, because um, we've got forces deployed in the Middle East, ships deployed in the European theater out in the Indo-Pacific. You know, they're all facing active adversaries. In some cases, they're actually being shot at. And uh, maintaining that operational tempo is putting stress on the Navy. Also, the Navy doesn't have that flexibility to be able to pull ships off deployment for training or maintenance you know, like they might have in the past because this, these operational needs are overriding that. It also means that schedules are being you know changed. So you've got ships being extended on deployment. That impacts their ability to come home and do the you know, the maintenance periods or the repairs that they had scheduled. And so back here in the United States, you've got uh, repair yards, training facilities that are having to juggle you know, their schedules, you know, which adds to costs, adds to complexity. So you know, it makes management you know, of the fleet a lot harder, uh, makes it more expensive. You know, and, and also from the for the sailors' perspective, they're obviously a lot busier and they're staying on deployment longer. Yeah, you, you touched on the part I wanted to ask you about next, which is obviously the cost of all of this. Uh, this is you know stretching manpower is one thing, stretching the dollars to pay them is another. Uh, what can you know? What does the future look like for Navy budgetary concerns now? Yeah, so the Navy, you know, is, is taking these operations out of hide right now. So the argument would be, well, these ships will be on deployment anyway. We're we're essentially just using them for these missions as opposed to doing training or or exercises uh, or whatever they would have done otherwise. But uh, you know, we're starting we're starting to see ships stay on deployment longer than they were intended. Uh, we're seeing ships get deployed earlier. So as a result, we're we're burning up a lot of money in terms of just ship operations. Um, and then, like I said, on the back end, what happens is, you know, when you're trying to schedule maintenance, you know, our ship repair capacity capacity is pretty constrained. And so if you just like if you go to the car shop and you and you your car needs uh, extra work, you're going to have to pay extra and somebody else is going to get bumped in order to make that happen. These ships are going to come back, they're going to need extra maintenance, that's going to increase costs. It's going to bump the next ship down the line to later, which means rescheduling and replanning that creates more costs. So we're creating costs across basically every link of the readiness chain. You know, we've got ships on deployment longer, needing more repairs, creating scheduling complexity, you know, creating more costs for uh, adaptation on the on the maintenance or repair side. And then we're creating a whole set of new needs in terms of you know training, you know, to prepare ships for the kinds of operations they're doing now, which might have differed from what they were going to do when these deployments were planned, you know, six months or a year ago. You keep on providing me perfect segues because I wanted to touch on the manpower issue and, you know, recruitment. We've heard from armed services leaders that recruitment has been tricky nowadays. And when people are seeing action, it can sometimes give a little bit of boost to recruitment in the first part. But then as things stretch on, that kind of has an effect on it. Is that what the Navy is seeing right now? Is it in a similar situation as other branches of the military? Yeah, so um, we just actually did an event with the Marine Corps Assistant Commandant, and he made the point that the Marines made their their recruitment code quotas, and that's largely because people believe in the mission, they believe in the the culture of the Marines, and they're and they're joining for that reason. So, like you said, in some ways, the current operations are going to be you know make it more attractive to join the Navy because you'll actually go feel like you're doing something and making a difference, and you know in this case, protecting shipping in the Middle East, for example. But you're right, the stress of you know long deployments. You know, going on on deployment more frequently, 
coming home and basically turning right into maintenance as opposed to getting any sort of stand down, those things are going to really wear on the fleet. And when new recruits are you know, talking to recruiters or talking to people in the Navy, they're going to get that feedback and that's going to hurt recruiting. The Navy fell 20% short of its recruiting quota this last year. So that's significant. And I think they might get a little bump you know, from these current operations, but I think it's still going to be a really challenging recruiting environment. There's other places to work. Pay is really well, you know, really good in the other sectors of the economy. And the challenge we're going to see with the Navy probably is going to be increasingly retention. So retention's been great. You know, the Navy's had no problem keeping people in. But I think when you get these longer deployments, more frequent deployments, that's going to cause people to rethink their decision maybe to go for that next term in the service and look at some of these other options in the commercial sector, which are pretty lucrative and very attractive. Now, if you're if you're eligible to serve in the military or you're already serving, you know, you're a really attractive recruit for a company that has to, you know, try to you know, deal with lots of other you know, challenges out there in the civilian sector. We're speaking with Brian Clark. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. And yeah, it's not all doom and gloom. I, I didn't, don't want to portray it as, <laughs> as some sort of dire situation the Navy is facing. So what are the positives of what is happening right now? At least, you know, the Navy gets to maybe try out some new technologies and look at those future capabilities for, you know, the next battle. Is, is Are they right. currently testing any new technologies, you know, in the conflicts that they're dealing with right now? Yeah, so so some new technologies are already getting rolled out, you know, that might help the fleet. So counter UAS, counter drone technologies. So like electronic warfare systems, high power microwave systems, which you know you, we use around airports and airfields today here, but they haven't get gotten used on ships very much. Um, those systems are going out there. The idea of using uh, drones to attack other drones that's probably going to you know get some traction now with the Navy. So that's that's a good impetus to to bring these new technologies out to the fleet faster. Um, the other thing the Navy's getting practice of doing is just the mechanics of conducting missile defense because you know all of our missile defense operations you know until recently were exercises you know so they're kind of scripted you know they're kind of known quantities here you're being you know you're putting multiple ships and multiple crews in a position of having to react you know to an enemy's attack even though the attack is with you know, less sophisticated systems, you know, the mechanics and the processes are the same as what you'd use against the Chinese or against the Russians. So that's really good practice and gets people used to the the stress of, you know, a real operation and also the, um, you know, just the mechanics and, and, you know, human machine interface that has to occur there to make it a, a successful one. Are there any needs that aren't being met from the ship commanders who are asking for whether it's it's finally getting to use the lasers that they're, they're equipped with or is yeah. there other things that they are desiring to help them fulfill right. this mission and maybe speed things up a little? Yeah, I'd say what commanders are really asking for is a lot more counter drone technology, right? Because you're, we've been having to use surface to air missiles to shoot down some of these drones, which the cost exchange is not very attractive from the U.S. perspective. So you're shooting down a $10,000 drone with a million dollar missile, which makes sense because if you're defending a, a ship in the Red Sea, that cost exchange is worth it. But still, you know, over a long term, that's not sustainable. So the, the fleet commanders want to get electronic warfare systems out there like we use ashore, right? When you look at what the Ukrainians are doing to defeat Russian drones is mostly jamming. It's you know jamming the radar, jamming the sensor, jamming the GPS, jamming the communications. 
and then it's high power microwave to disrupt the electronics on top of those or on those uh, drones. And then it's um, laser systems. You know, so laser systems are something the Navy has been trying to introduce. I think one of the what this might highlight is that the Navy should feel the kinds of lasers they can already get access to, which are these you know, kind of less than 100 kilowatt you know, models that would really be good against drones, but maybe aren't great for missile defense. And I think that's where the Navy's the debate in the Navy has been is, do we wait for a bigger laser that's able to take down a cruise missile, or do we field the smaller lasers today that can take out a drone? And I think what the operations in the Middle East are going to highlight is the fact that we should get those lasers out there more quickly to deal with the drone threat and save us the need to use expensive surface-to-air missiles to shoot them down. And overall, the current state of the U.S. Navy, what sort of metrics are used to measure how well it matches up against other nations' navies, you know, whether it's even our allies in Europe or, or things of that nature? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think, you know, fleet size matters because, you know, ships, unlike airplanes, which can move around pretty quickly and are pretty fungible, ships can only really be in one place at a time. So you have to have a fleet that's big enough to, like you see with the U.S. Navy, operate in the European theater, in the Middle East, in the Indo-Pacific simultaneously. So that's one measure. And then the other measure might be, you know, how well, you know, ships are able to conduct offensive and defensive operations. You know, if you look at the Chinese Navy, for example, which is bigger than the U.S. Navy, most of their ships are really designed for kind of coastal or near shore, near seas defense. So they're really able to only defend themselves, but they can't really project power in addition to that. Um, And they've got a small portion of their fleet that's growing that's intended to do both projecting power, offense, and defense. So that's one uh, another thing is, you know, can your ships individually conduct both offense and defense? Um, and then I'd say the last thing is just kind of looking at, you know, how are they going to fight? You know, what's the, are they equipped to do the kinds of operations that you're likely to have to do? So for example, the littoral combat ship, you know, was initially not really equipped to do the kinds of operations that the Navy thought it might do, which is sort of escorting ships and protecting sea lanes because it didn't have enough defensive capacity. So that's changed. They put some more weapons on them and you see them now operating in the South China Sea and protecting sea lanes there and helping allies and partners defend their you know, maritime time territory. So I think that's the last thing is sort of, are they equipped to be able to do the kinds of missions that they're going to be expected to do? We don't need a littoral combat ship to be, you know, a destroyer or a, or a cruiser, you know, but it can do the things that it's you know meant to be able to do. Well, I think, you know, the other thing that came out of this was sort of the importance of uh, you know naval aviation. You know, we, we used a carrier-based aircraft to go attack these Houthi sites ashore. We'll probably continue to do that. And now you've got Marine Corps, or rather an amphibious ship in, in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean that's deploying Marine Corps F-35. And they're able to continue that, carry that fight. But, you know, in this case, you've had a lot of countries that are sort of sitting out, you know, this confrontation because they don't want to get on the wrong side of, you know, either Israel or, or the Arab community. And so the U.S. has to depend on these, these naval aircraft, you know, to be able to conduct operations because that's the only base that's got, they've got access to. So it really highlighted the importance of naval aviation and, and the need for the Navy to really think about how to create a sustainable mix of aircraft over the long term because the F-35 is pretty expensive expensive, pretty expensive to operate. The new aircraft they're pursuing might be even more expensive. Brian Clark is a military analyst and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Sail with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. 
Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. 
So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.